Hi, Joel and Suzanne. Hi, my name is Art Wimberly. Hi, my name is Lauren. Hey, Suzanne, my name is Brad. Hi, Suzanne, my name is Chelsea. Hi, my name is Mark. Hi, my name is Sarah. Hi, my name is Nicole. Hi, my name is Rachel. And hello, I'm Joel from LTM, and this is episode 82 of the Anagram Journey podcast with the Anagram Jedi. You may know her as the godmother, Suzanne Stabile. As you can tell from the intro, today we're going to try to answer some of your questions. We're going to talk about fours and fives a lot. One of the topics of conversation is fours and conflict. After you listen to it, if you are a four and you want to share your feelings about conflict, visit theenneagramjourney.org backslash interact and leave a voicemail uh, with the subject line being, you know, fours and conflict. And uh, we'll compile them together and share them. We're also going to be talking about essence and a bunch of other stuff. And Suzanne shares some really great stories about her mom who was an Enneagram 5. So that was a lot of fun to listen to. Just a quick two plugs today. Are you watching Suzanne, Joe, Joey, Billy, and whoever else is going to show up on the LTM livestream page? Visit livestream.com and search Life in the Trinity Ministry and you'll find it. And are you participating in the Enneagram Journey curriculum? Go to Vimeo.com and search the Anagram Journey Curriculum or visit LifeInTheTrinityMinistry.com and you'll find it there. No more spoilers, no more plugs. Let's get to your questions. You're not. You mentioned it last week. Or that I was doing better? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that Dad's terrible. Just all used to beals. Uh, use your hands to talk. Yeah, what's all used to be is yours to be. I know. I'm not one that uses my hands to speak. Oh, okay. I speak with my words. All right, so we are here for a podcast Q&A episode. These are fun. I like Always. Them. I like yeah. them too. Uh, the people like them. The people have spoken. They like them. Oh, yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. And they, just so everyone is represented or feels represented, mm-hmm. a lot of people like the Q&A episodes. A lot of people like episodes when you just teach. And mm. there's no questions and no guests, just Suzanne teaching. Yeah. And a lot of people like when there's a guest. Well, that's good. So, so now I, th- I think I've covered them all. all right. I like the Q&A, and I like it when I teach, and I like it when we have a guest. Yeah. I, I like all of them. As a seven, I'm, I need the variety. Yeah. So there's that. I like it. So let's jump to our first question. Okay. All right, so this question comes from Deborah, and she the subject is the episode with Morgan, oh, so which okay. we all loved. Yeah, we did. Uh, if, yeah, if you all haven't picked up on that yet. But she says, love this episode. I'm still trying to find my type, and I often resonate with five. I wish that you had talked about what it looks like for her to go to seven and stress. Thanks for introducing me to her. So the question is about fives going to seven and stress. I think both moves for five are crazy moves. It's like you don't expect a five to go to eight in security, and you don't expect a five to go to seven in stress. Yeah, and people the other way around when it's reversed. Yep. When sevens go to five, yep. it's so out of character, right. and people are thrown by that. And when eights go to five, right. people don't know what to do. And, you know, those kinds of things just add to my commitment to the wisdom of the Enneagram because it's like there's a, there's all of this unexpected depth there but what happens when a five makes those two moves is it answers a need that fives have 
So the move to seven is often observable as dry humor. Some people miss and think that dry humor is sarcasm, but I think those are two different things, and I think that move includes both. But it's because fives are so thinking dominant that when you try to be funny and you minimize the words that you're going to use, sometimes it's misunderstood and more words would be better. I also think that fives are funny, but because they're so hesitant to speak up, people don't know that side of them. And when they are in seven, it takes a while to think that they're even saying the things they're saying, and then they're funny, and then you kind of want more if you're in a relationship with a five, and they don't they don't give you more on at your request. They give you more when it comes from inside of them. And I bet you don't remember this because you were so young, but my mom was a five. And the thing that you do as a seven where if you have a, a funny line or a joke or something – you think it's so funny you get a little tickled before you say it, like you laugh a little and then you say it. And my mom did that. When she thought something was funny, in that seven space, she would just laugh and say it and then laugh some more and not care whether or not you got the humor in it. One of the things that I've learned is when I think something's funny and I start laughing, mm -hmm. As I've gotten older, and I think it goes a little bit with maturity and everything, I look around and see who my audience is. Uh -huh. Because if it's not going to be funny to the people around me, mm -hmm. then I'm not going to say it. And I'm and I'm happy with that. I'm not like not sharing. It's, it's still just, funny for you. It's, it's maximizing the humor. Yeah. And so if I say it, and then other people just don't appreciate it because yeah. it is funny. It's not that they don't think it's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Then it lessens it. Yeah. And so then I can just keep it hilarious. There'll be times when Whitney and I are going to sleep and she'll just feel me bobbing up uh -huh, and down laughing. chuckling because I'm still thinking about something that happened at noon. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I was just going to say that I think fives and seven are also a little bit frivolous. They do things that might not be in line with all of their values of simplicity and minimizing and no excess and, you know, all, all of that. They just do frivolous things sometimes. You talked about Grandma, how she was a five. Mm -hmm. When we were little, me and the girls would individually, I think, did the girls, would they fly out there together or would they go individually? Individually. Individually. Okay, so we would, y'all would take us to Love Field, right. toss us on a, and I, this was little, this was like someone was walking me from the gate to the plane. Yep. Uh, toss me on a plane, I get out there, and I spend maybe a week with Grandma. Mm -hmm. Because we shared that line, do you think my experience with Grandma mm -hmm. was completely different than the girls' experience? Absolutely. So I bring in... Your grandson, who's a seven, mm -hmm. is here, and now 
you, you, I mean, hopefully she's not stressed out. I right. bet there were those times. When yeah. I think it's a, a meeting place. I think it's a meeting place. And I think fives risk more in seven. So, so all to say, what we think we're going to get from the number we go to in stress probably isn't what we're going to get. Like a stressed five would probably expect that when they go to seven, they're going to get something that supports what they're worried about. And instead, what they get in seven supports them as a human being. And with those skills, they address in a different way what they're worried about or what's stressing them. Can we possibly make up a situation where a five goes to stress and or the stressful move? And can you describe what it would look like for the five to go to the high side to choose? Mm-hmm. I, I really like that language to choose to go to the high high side or to automatically go to the average or low side of seven. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll use grandma. And this isn't made up. This is a real thing. So when she came down here, because both of my brothers lived here, she would go spend some time at Aubrey's house with his family, and then she'd go to Carol's house, spend some time with his family, and then she'd come to our house and spend some time with our family. And so by the time we got her, a lot of a lot of her energy had already been used up in their homes and with their families. So my mom, in that stress of feeling kind of empty and coming to our house third, uh, spent all of her time when she chose the high side of seven. She spent her time with the children, all four of you. Like it was, it, she, and she would kind of methodically do things. You, so you remember probably that she always wanted to share a room with the girls. She always wanted to be in their room. I know. Why wouldn't you want to share it with yeah, me? Yeah, I mean. yeah. And <laughs> they would do nails and do all that kind of stuff. But then she also always carved out time to be with the boys. And I think in on the high side of seven, she came to our house to play. And on the low side of seven... She um, sometimes got pretty critical of me. Is that about the time that we started packing, getting the bag ready? (laughs) Well, you know, we pretty much, if we were going to be there from Sunday to Friday, we were there from Sunday to Friday. But she would um, connect with the four of you on the high side of seven. And then on the low side of seven, she would help me parent all of you. Yeah. You know that low side of seven where you think you're right about everything and there, there's one way to do things and it's your way and you're a little bit um, maybe cynical with people who don't do it your way. That's kind of what comes, came with her after she got tired and she had played with everybody then the low side of seven was, you should, and I caught that most. The shoulds and the oughts came yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. 
that seven five relationship that we had. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think worked really well with that was when she needed you talk about the times as her daughter of her needing her space and yeah. her routine and her and she was fine to let me go. Yep. And I was fine to go. Yep. So I just got to do my own thing in her neighborhood of Floyd to Texas. Yep. So it, it worked out well. Yeah, and and she she as a healthy five took whatever we had to give her. And then she didn't ask for any more. But do you remember her standing at the door anytime we would leave? We'd get in the car to leave, and she'd be standing at the door after Daddy died, and she'd just stand there and watch us. Well, we always also had just taken a family picture. That's right. that was a, Her house was always a stop on the drive to Lake City, Colorado. Yeah. And so we all did the family picture with her, and so she was out there anyway. Yeah. Then you would start crying. Yep. As we get in I'm the about car. to cry now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I I think a healthy five who can appropriately choose and use the high side of seven and the high side of eight is kind of a home for everybody. You know, because in eight, you know, there is no from my tuness cloying that won't get you anywhere i want more that won't get you anywhere Mm -hmm. it's like here's what here's what i've got and it was so good well since we talked about i know that's not what the question was but let's go and take advantage of this and let's talk about fives going to eight so that's a security move and let's do this same same thing what does that look like on the high side of eight Mm -hmm. and the low side it's tricky to know the high side of eight because it generally comes out sideways. Fives do whatever they want to do, but they don't tell you they're going to do whatever they want to do. They just do it. They're stubborn, and they can be withdrawn when they want to. And what eight offers fives on the high side is confidence and decision-making. It's like we don't need to wait any longer. It's a decision-making thing. Some, some doing happens. It, absolutely, and it happens fast. And it happens definitively on the high side of eight. On, on the low side of eight, it's begrudged doing. Right? I'll do it, but I don't really think it needed doing. And Or it's done. Are you happy now? Or, um, I said I'd handle it, you know, that, that's the low side of eight. But the high side of eight is this story. You know that we, as a family, moved Carolyn every single time she moved. And she's like, moving Carolyn's like moving Jenny. You ask them if they're ready and if they're packed up, and then we all get there, and they haven't packed anything and but they told us they were ready. And then we all have to kind of get involved and get stuff together and get it to the car and get it to the new place, right? And I, since I was 18 years old, have in moving Carolyn or moving with Carolyn, I have always said, she'll say, well, I don't know where to put anything. That's not my thing. I don't know where to put anything. And I've always put everything 
I mean the sofa where it goes, the chairs where they go, the bed where it goes, the knickknacks in a good place, and the things in the kitchen in an appropriate place. Moving paralyzes fives. It just, they're paralyzed by it. So having that history, I was out of town teaching when she moved the last time from where she was to her house that she's in now. So I get back in town, and she wants me to come over there and help her to tell her where to put stuff. So I get there, and I say, I think it would be good to put the sofa here. And she said, well, I'm not going to. And it's my house. I can nail it to the wall if I want to. <laughs> now that is the high side of eight, but it still comes out sideways. Mm-hmm. It's like, at what? how old do you think she was when we moved into that last house? Maybe nine, eight or nine years ago. Mm-hmm. So she was 70. And I had put the sofa somewhere every time she had ever moved. So when when she said, I don't want it there, I want it here, but I can nail it to the wall if I want to, I thought, I, all I could say was, okay, okay then, I think this is a really good place for it over here. Now, if she had more time on the high side of eight, then it would be, I like it here on the wall. Without the, I could put it, I can put it anywhere I want to. Mm-hmm. So this is a question out of left field a little bit. Is a trait of eights, high or low, or in between, does it seem to you like they take ownership of themselves and their, whether it's good or bad, or whether they, it comes off sideways or softly, I don't know. I, th- I think it is, and I think what you're calling ownership, I would say an eight on the high side of eight, or a five or a two on the high side of eight has an unwavering self-confidence. I mean, that's what it was about the couch. I like it here. And the couch is not in the best place to this minute. I mean, it'll never be moved, but it's where she wanted it. And it's... um, you know, when I'm an eight, when I'm on the healthy side of eight, I don't do all that setting the table for why I don't want to do so. I just say no. Mm-hmm. And I never do that. I, I didn't do it as a parent. I, that's just not who I am. But there's a self-confidence that comes in that place of, I don't really care if you think it's best or if it's what you want to do. In this moment in time, I'm doing this. I think it's I, that. I think you're right. That, that does sound better. Okay, this next question is a voicemail left by Beth. Hey, Suzanne, this is Beth from South Carolina. So I'm pretty sure I'm a two. I love doing little things for people, giving small gifts, writing sticky notes, um, letting them know I appreciate them, encouraging them. Um, And I do this, things like that, because um, I love to make others feel loved. And it also makes me feel good when I see that they know I love them. Um, So obviously, my motivation is to be loved and to do things um, and be appreciated. I've even been told I'm an overachiever um, sometimes because I just really want to get things right and, and make people happy, I guess. So I see a lot of two characteristics. But my question is, though, can a two be selfish? Because I have no problem 
um, having my me time and getting my things done, sometimes even before doing something that someone else has asked me to do, um, especially my husband. So do I have my number wrong? Can I be a two but still be selfish? Thanks. Okay, again, I don't, I don't pick the question. Yeah, I mean, I, think I pick you the pick questions. Yeah, but it's like, this is a good one. I don't know Beth. I didn't say, hey, Beth, yeah. send this in. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the answer is yes. And um, unfortunately, twos put a spin on selfishness that often makes it look like it's for the greater good. You call that martyrdom a lot, don't you? you I do. It's like um, twos don't say, I'm doing this for myself. They rename it something so that it, so I might say, I need to do this because uh, I know what you want me to do, but if I do this, I'll be better I'll be more involved in what you want me to do. I'll be more committed to what you want me to do. It's like there's a little thing that that twos intuitively, not necessarily intentionally, use to try to cover, I'm going to do what I want to do right now. I'm going to do that first, and then I'm going to take care of you. And where the martyrdom comes in is when they don't do what they wanted to do. They do instead what you wanted, and then they martyr about it, which is selfish, right? Like it's, then you've undone what you did for the other person by martyring about what you didn't do for yourself. So I I think because twos are generous and thoughtful and um, givers and helpers, I think there is a misunderstanding that twos don't correct, that they love everybody, and that they always put other people ahead of themselves, and that they're last. You, you remember for a while there were billboards that said, I am third, I'm second? Yeah, it's still a thing. I think that's a uh, deal with the Baptist church, oh, okay. and I'm, I'm not trying to minimize it. Sure, I think sure. that's a... Slogan the Baptist Church was going. I remember it was a here in Texas. Yeah, it was huge when Josh Hamilton yes, was, was here with the Rangers. Yep, because he was a big proponent of it. He yep. was the biggest athlete in the state at that time. Yeah, and it was a big thing. Yeah, it was a big thing, and also the billboards from God around that time were a big. Oh thing. You remember my. those on the yes. highways? I don't want. I. <laughs> <laughs> I hope the listeners remember that they were. I'm sorry, they're a little ridiculous at times. And you know, it was such and such. I'm remembering it because the I am second was a dark background with white yep. letters. Yep. And these messages from God, from God on these billboards. Yeah. Yeah. That dad used to say, as we would pass one of those, you know, he's a man of few words. And he used to say, I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> I remember one, the short, this is probably the shortest one, was I saw that. Yeah. God. Yeah. It's like, oh my. And. People who are watching our live streams and everything right now are going to be like, oh my gosh, when is he going to stop talking about it? I'm reading The Soul of Shame. Oh, that book. And how shaming is that? Right, the right. Line, I, I saw, saw that. I saw that. Yeah. Yep. Like, oh, yeah. How, how can you not feel anything but shame based on whatever it is 
you're you doing. have now put on God's thought. Well, you know, like I would look, I, I would immediately, you're not doing anything if you're driving, right? But I would look immediately at the speedometer to see if I was speeding or I don't know. That was crazy. All right. Yeah. Sorry. We're, we're yeah, back. But we digress. Um, so the whole I am second thing. I think twos, you know that part of twos where they try to put out that they love everybody? I think they also kind of put out I am second. And they are sometimes. And sometimes they're first. And sometimes they're second and they want to be first. And sometimes they're fifth. You you know what I mean? So what bothers me a lot about this is that I think... Twos have a way of being in the world that is honest, but it doesn't represent the totality of a two. It's not dishonest when you are generous and kind and you do something for somebody else and you think we ought to do this. That's how I think, right? There's, I am altruistically second and I am second That's right. with ulterior motives. That's exactly right. Or I'm second and I resent it. Mm-hmm. And I think um, it's very interesting because when people are trying to figure out their number and they talk about ones, they have positive and negative things to say. When they send us a note and they're trying to figure out if they're a um, nine or a two, they have negative things to say about the nine, but only positive things to say about a two. People don't say negative things about a two. And that causes a lot of trouble for twos in relationships because it puts out this picture that isn't true. And that's to go back to stories that you've told about teaching a positive enneagram as far as a know your number goes, that it's just hard to do partly because especially in Christian Southern audiences, Mm -hmm. you've talked about how women over the past in our area in the church over the past yep. 80 years, whatever, like that's been what they've been instructed to be. That's right. So then if it's, you know, what if you don't identify as that? Yeah. The, it, and the, and then the shame comes back in. And so if you don't identify in that, then who are you? Right. And if you do identify in that, because for whatever reason, you are giving and you are the... It's lovely to be generous, regardless of your Enneagram number and regardless of your motivation. But if as a two, you see yourself any way other than the way Beth Beth. described herself, Beth is being honest. She's, She's saying, sometimes I'm selfish. Is that so? Am I a two? And the answer is, yes, you are. And you're a healthy two because you're owning that sometimes you're selfish. And I think we set people up to expect that we're always going to be available, that we're always going to be helpful, that we are always going to be right there for them. And then we get mad at them for expecting that from us. It's a that it's not a good thing. And it's cause twos don't have any boundaries. So If you have good boundaries, Beth, don't call that selfishness. Be sure that you're being selfish and that you are not just a two with good boundaries. It goes to the, you know, grab on to some of that eight energy of self-confidence and owning what is 
Yeah. No, what I don't want? want to. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to. All right. Our next question is from Addie. Okay. Hi, Suzanne. My name is Addie and I'm a four on the Enneagram. And I just had a question about conflict. Um, I think that it's usually said that fours, while they may not enjoy conflict, they don't hate it because it tends to really intensify our feelings. And I can definitely see that where it creates that very real depth in connection and in relationships. But I was just wondering if maybe it's normal for a four to not enjoy conflict. Um, It tends to make me feel like people will leave um, or that somehow the relationship is compromised and not in a good place. And that really stresses me out. Um, And I do not enjoy conflict and I do not tend to really start conflict unless I think that it's important or unless I just feel like it's time to talk about something and maybe this also really goes in with the with drawing stance of before but I was just wondering maybe if that was normal um, and if it was normal to see more of those conflict type qualities of a nine and a four even though I for sure know that I'm a four thank you so much that's a good question and it has a lot of um, a, a lot to work with and a lot of depth so talking about conflict can be Difficult for just different people to understand. Yeah. It's um, whether you want it or don't want it, how you respond to it. People think that like sevens are down for conflict because they were in the quote unquote aggressive stance. Yeah. Like I don't, there's nothing enjoyable about conflict. So because I'm in the aggressive stance, I don't get walked over. Right. But I'm not looking for it. Right. Right. I do think, and I'm glad she tipped her hat to the fact that fours like intensity and that comes with conflict but what I would say to start with in terms of observing yourself is the reality that you're always afraid that there's going to be a disconnection in relationship you're always afraid of abandonment as a four you're always afraid that somebody's going to leave you so the question I would have for you is, are you more afraid when there's conflict or do you just have a place to put it when there's conflict? And the rest of the time, you don't know where to put it, so you just kind of live with the anxiety of, are you going to leave and when are you going to leave? And I know you're going to leave because everybody leaves and all that. So figure out how to separate those two for yourself. And then... The next piece I think for you to look at would be nines hate conflict and force dislike conflict, but in a different way. So two or three things I would say are these one uh, in terms of talking about four and a nine nines will go to great lengths to avoid conflict. Fours don't do all that work to avoid conflict. The second thing is what happens after conflict And so you have to figure out if you feel any more vulnerable after conflict than you do before conflict. Or if you just have a place to put that vulnerability and a way to describe it. Because after conflict, as a two, I think people are going to leave me. You kind of carry that all the time. 
And that's just messy in terms of figuring out conflict. But you walk away from conflict, and unless it's with somebody that you really love or that's real important to you, you walk away. And nines don't, well, they never forget. Is it is part of the fourness and part of that push and pull is whatever uh, you kind of talked about when conflict comes to a four, uh-huh. it sounded like you kind of said something about um, not transforming it. That's not the right word, but it turns into anxiety yep. more or less. And is that in the withdrawal when it's the pool part? And then is the push part the not enjoyment of conflict, but when they are engaged, is that the push? Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think there. I think what I'm learning still is that there's a push-pull externally for fours, and there's an internal push-pull that's going on. And that's what you're talking about. Yeah, it seems like from the outside looking in, uh, you know, when she's talking about for a four to enjoy conflict, maybe not, or not enjoy, but whatever her terminology was, utilize conflict for during that external push. Or get something from the intensity. Mm -hmm. I think instead of enjoy, we would say, that fours get something from the intensity of conflict. Mm-hmm. What happens after the conflict seems to be what Addie's worried about. And it seems like looking back, it's scary. But what I would suggest is that fours, because of how they see, kind of look for abandonment everywhere. And after conflict, they can name it. One of the uh, greatest amount of feedback we got about anything when we were talking about anxiety for each number, and when we got to eights, you were kind of like, I'm, you kind of said, I'm, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. And the eights of the world let, you, let us know what they thought about anxiety. I would love, if you're a four listening, send in a voicemail and let us know what that push-pull looks like to you around Mm -hmm. conflict Mm -hmm. you know leave the voicemail and we can maybe string a bunch of them together uh, and share them at the end of a future podcast for people to hear from fours what that looks like i I know that'd be helpful for me yeah yeah i think um in my experience right after conflict fours push after the conflict Uh interesting as soon as it's over they push and then when they start feeling Afraid of the cost, they pull. We've talked a little bit recently, not on this episode, but about fives and kind of the delay in their reaction to things. And now we're talking about a little bit about fours here. Is that a trait of the withdrawing stance? Yep. It's the reaction after. It's later. It's later. Yep. Yeah. So four fives and nines. Yep. It's always later. That's odd. That that would be hard for me. How does that work for you and dad, him being a nine? That'd be hard for me to have the pushback later when I've moved on. For me, it's I know dad is angry before he's willing to name it as angry. Or I know something's wrong before he's willing to name it, right? Like it, but, and then it hits. And it's, um, in nines, it's passive aggressive. You know, you don't, 
they don't they're not passive aggressive with you in real time you you pay later <laughs> right and fours push you away and then they think through the conflict and then they decide where they're going to stand and then they pull you back but they don't pull you back about the conflict they pull you back about something else they bring up something else to pull you in mm-hmm. we've talked about fives how they like to whenever let's say the topic is about a car whatever mm-hmm. and then they'll go do the research stuff around the cars and then come back when we're not talking about cars anymore, anymore. and hey let's talk about cars and what mm-hmm. i now and we're talking about fours right now in conflict what does that look like or does that look the same in conflict for a five so I'm asking because if I were in conflict with a five, are they going to, you know, do whatever in the moment, but then come back with how they feel and what they think and whatever later about that conflict situation? Um, I want to prepare myself. Yeah. I, well, I, well, I've got two stories to tell you, uh, both of them about your grandmother. The, and these are two stories from... Uh, really when I was young. Um, but one thing I learned from these two stories that I, that I think I've seen lived out in every five I deal with and every five I know, and that is, uh, you know how in court they talk about whether or not you're innocent or guilty, and then you come back later for the punishment phase? Mm-hmm. That's kind of what happens with fives. So like verdict and then sentencing? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so there's a verdict, and you may not have talked about the verdict. If you're a participant, you may not know what the verdict is, but there's a punishment phase coming. Is a better analogy in this one deliberation? Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. So um, one story is my dad's and mom... They had separate closets, and in their closets was their, uh, a basket for some of their dirty clothes. But there was a big dirty clothes basket in the bathroom. And my dad uh, wore boxers, and I found out during this whole thing that was being lived out between my mom and dad. <laughs> and uh, he was a one, and she was a five, and she said, I need you to stop dropping your boxers by the dirty clothes basket. And I I need you to put them in the basket. That wasn't really where his one space was? Nope. He didn't live it out there. So he started, he, he dropped his boxers and left them. He kicked them from the bedroom into the bathroom with her watching and left them on the floor by the dirty clothes hamper in the bathroom. And she left him there. She just left him there. And I would say, how long are these going to be here? Till he picks them up. And she would do laundry around them and put the laundry basket back and leave them sitting. Yeah, I got a lot right of respect there. for this. Yeah. So now here, here's a, uh, and he ultimately picked them up. Here's an even better example, but not kind of an everyday example. So, uh, you know, my older brothers were um, very different from one another. And my oldest brother kind of followed in my dad's footsteps. He was 
uber smart and he went to med school and became a doc and all that. And so that's background. So I, I was in college and I went home and mother had had the, and dad had had the kitchen painted. And that wasn't a regular occurrence. You know, do you remember that house at all? We lived in a big old two-story house with lots of bedrooms and spaces, and it was great. Anyway, so she had the kitchen painted and the breakfast area, and it was pretty large kitchen and breakfast area. I sat down at the table, and I said, the kitchen looks really beautiful. It's a perfect color, and you've got to really love it. It looks great. And she said, I love it. Makes me happy. Makes me whistle, she said. She liked to whistle. And I uh, was sitting there, and I was just looking around and drinking coffee and talking to her. And I looked up, and there was a spot on the ceiling. And I said, oh, Mom, the painters missed a spot on the ceiling. And she said, oh, no, no, I told them to paint around that. And I said, what is it? She said, well, it's about probably 25-year-old oatmeal now. And I said, what? And she said, yeah. She said, one day, uh, your dad and Aubrey were making fun of Carol. And they did that too much. And I had had enough of it. And I slammed my hand down on the table to tell them to stop it. And I happened to hit my spoon, which had oatmeal in it. And it landed on the ceiling. And it's still there. And I said, why do you want it to still be there? It's a totem. She said, because when dad gets a little bit out of line and I'm about had enough of it, I just point to the ceiling and he settles right down, she said. (laughs) (laughs) I love that story so much. Because fives don't forget, right? It's like, uh uh-oh, do you remember what happened that time? Because that's about to happen again. So I don't even know what the question is anymore, but I we, sure did love telling stories yeah, about no, that was my great. mom We were talking and about, it was about fours in conflict, but then we turned that into, and she also asked about with, the withdrawing stance in conflict, and then I asked questions, and, and now here we are. To, well, I want to say one more thing about fours in conflict and the push-pull, because I think it's really important for us to say that when they pull you back, they do it in relationship to something else. They don't revisit what the thing was, right? They push you away because of the thing, but they're fine to have it unresolved for all of time. And then they pull you back in in relationship to something else. It's not, it's not to work that out. We talked yesterday, whatever the day was, about fours and sevens. I'd be curious from other sevens. I need, there's no, we're going to leave this unresolved. There's got to be some sort of, conclusion one one way or the other for me that's just me uh, all right we've got a question here from south africa isn't that fun hi suzanne my name is erin and i'm calling from south africa i'm relatively new to the enneagram and i'm struggling to figure out whether i'm a four or a one though i think i'm probably a four i identify really strongly with all aspects of both numbers, even the stress and security moves associated with each. And I'm trying to understand how this might be possible. I know that both ones and fours are quite naturally predisposed to feelings of shame. So my question is, 
If a four child grows up with critical parents or experiences a trauma that ends up threatening their sense of autonomy, could that trigger a self-preserving move to one? And if this move were to happen frequently, like out of necessity, could the one space become like a second home to a four, such that um, all the one traits are equally present to that four? I hope I've managed to phrase the question so that it's understandable. Thanks a lot for your work. It's helping in many ways. Thank you so much for that question. And we're going to try to kind of kill two birds with one stone here. Someone sent in a question about like soul types or something like that, that as a kid, from what they understand from some sort of research, as a child, you're this number, but then you become another number. And I know how you feel about that, but it seems like she's touching on that a little bit. So anyways, go. Okay. Well, I'm going to address the latter part first. Uh, Sandra Matry, uh, who has known the Enneagram for a long time, done some really great work. Very deep, but good work. And she talks about your soul child. And she believes that you are your security number when you're a child. And then you, that, that's what they're talking about. When I first heard about it, um, actually dad and I were uh, in Albuquerque and Richard Rohr had read about it and we talked about it quite a bit. And it, it did fit for him and it did not for me or for dad. So I, I'm not sure about all that. I like Sandra Matry. I like her work. I think we have at all times both our stress and our security number in us because we respond to life with all three numbers. So that's, that's where I am on that. Let me say that I think there is a fragility in fours that finds one behavior to be a safety net. When people are emotionally vulnerable so much of the time, like fours are, there has to be some protection somewhere. And when four goes to one, it's for protection. And it works. And it works in doing. And it's because fours are doing repressed, and they've got all these intense emotions, when they move to one and there's doing, and not only doing, but trying to do things correctly or perfectly or right, then I think that feels good. So I want to step completely outside of her growing up and all that. I'll come back to it. And I want to talk about the fact that I'm still struggling with whether or not I think Nashville is a three-city or a four-city. Um, And our friends in Nashville have different opinions about that. But what I know is that there are lots and lots of fours in Nashville. And they only get what's inside of them. You know, an idea for a song only becomes a song when they're in one. It's, It's like they spend so much time in one space that you could read Nashville at times as a three city, a four city, or a one city. And I I often use the example that if it weren't, if four didn't go to one, 
then there's so much creativity in the world that we would never see, that we would never, ever experience. So silo that. Our friend Elizabeth, um, who lives in Austin, is a four. Listeners have heard her before. Uh, Elizabeth Chapin is her name. She's been on with Nathaniel, and she was on the parenting panel. And Elizabeth uh, is a painter, a, a really good painter. And she's also in recovery. And she says, when I'm in one working, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And if I'm doing something else, it's not what I'm supposed to be doing because I'm supposed to be painting. So I want to take that and creativity becoming a thing in Nashville in one space and for Elizabeth. And I want to suggest that if you grew up with one parent, parents who are a one, a parent who is a one, and you didn't find your world as a child to be a place that embraced creativity and freedom and all of that stuff that comes with being a four, then your safety place becomes doing the right thing the right way at the right time. And once that's a pattern for how you live your days, you begin to think you're a one, even if you're not. And I've heard her question from lots and lots of people, and every one of them had at least one parent who was a one on the Enneagram. Awesome. And then we have a question from Troy. Hey, guys. Love you. Love the show. Love the work you guys do. So thankful for you. My question is about identity. I know that, Suzanne, you have talked about Enneagram numbers as being like a like a mask that we all wear to help us make our way in the world. And so you're teaching us about who we are not as opposed to who we are. And the more we grow, uh, the more our personality falls off. And underneath all that is essence. So when you get to essence, what does that mean? Am I, in my essence, a a ghosty kind of blank soul who's loved by God? Uh, does essence have anything to do with my Enneagram number? Yeah, if you could shed some light on that, it'd be greatly appreciated. Thanks. So we're talking about essence. So first touch on that. I know that as soon as that word is uttered, some people kind of check out. So go and don't check out people. I wish I had a different way to talk about uh, all of that. And maybe I don't because of the way I was taught uh, or because of my perspective, which is Christian. So I'm going to talk about the grandbabies. Uh, all, All nine of them I was with within the first hour of their lives. And um, they had no personality. Meaning, they were balanced in thinking, feeling, and doing. They were uh, an open book that hadn't been written in yet. 
they were uh, responding to life naturally with whatever feelings they had and then with whatever thoughts and feelings they had and then with whatever thoughts and feelings they have and with whatever they're doing. And because one person's way of doing things doesn't always jive with another person's way of doing things, uh, children learn that they need to meet uh, the desires of their parents or their caretakers in order to feel safe. So they do things that wouldn't be what they would naturally do, or they do things that wouldn't necessarily be what they want to do in order to stay in right relationship with their parents or caregivers or grandparents or teachers or whoever they're with. And every time they do that, they add a layer of personality. The way of talking about essence would be to say that your essence is the part of you that has not been hurt, scarred, messed up by the world and by finding your way in the world and learning to live in the world. And it's always there. So one of the things that is the most important to me about understanding essence is that who I am underneath my personality. That's my definition of essence. Who you are underneath your personality. And because I am a survivor of sexual abuse, it matters a lot to me to know that my essence hasn't been harmed. I have more personality in some ways because I was abused and I had to do more work to be a healthy too. But my essence isn't harmed. It's, it's all there and it's all intact. And it's sort of like the older you get, if you are evolving and doing your work and all that, the older you get, the less personality you have and the more essence you are, which is your understanding of who you are without doing anything wrong and without doing anything right. It's about the purity of who you are underneath all of that. And I am sure there's a better way to talk about it, but I can't find it. And all of the suggestions of words that people give me to use instead of essence don't work. So I know it's a foo-foo word or a 60s word or a theological term. Right, it almost seems utopian. Yeah, and I don't know. I Maybe it is. Maybe yeah. underneath personality... That's where that utopian understanding exists because it's a place where you don't have to do what other people want you to do necessarily or be what other people want you to be. And it's not about right and wrong. So a great example is when you were a child, I used to say to you regularly, you have to talk to people when they're talking to you. It's rude for you to not answer adults when they talk to you. And from your perspective, you didn't have anything to say. And so you had to put on personality to respond to people who were, you, who were talking to you. That's not right or wrong. That's just my perspective of being in the world is I talk to everybody who talks to me and people who don't. And you're an introverted seven and you don't. And so you had to put on personality to learn to talk to people who are talking to you. 
whether you wanted to or not, right? Mm -hmm. And I have to put on personality to not talk to people so much when they don't have time to deal with me. It almost seems like the the word to go with this is allow. Like the more we allow things to happen to us or without having to react, yeah. then the closer we are to essence and That's the right. further we are from our personality. Yep, yep. And every one of those actions builds personality. Mm -hmm. And your personality just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then as you get older, you get tired. And all that kind of falls away. Not all of it. Some of it falls away depending on how evolved you are. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, and thank you all for the questions. We've got plenty more, and you're going to keep sending them in, and that works out great. And I, I, for one, love when you say where you're from. You don't have to, and it doesn't have to be South Africa, but uh, you know whether it's South Carolina or I think someone I heard earlier today was like East Pennsylvania. It's just fun to hear. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's, it's interesting to me, though, because when you brought up the when you read the one and said she's from South Carolina, I noticed I was talking a little bit louder. It's because it's farther. <laughs> <laughs> Got to bring up the thinking here. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, and thank you all again. Those were really yeah. great questions. They were hard and good. Great questions. Yep. Yep. Uh, well. We'll see y'all next time on the, we usually don't need a sign off, but today, you know. On the Enneagram yeah. journey. Yeah, be sure to tie up your boots on the Enneagram journey. <laughs>